Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a cloudy, rainy and autumn day here in the capital, it must be said, as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on this evening's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Graham Davis. Graham is the CEO of the Ivor's Academy of Music Creators, the UK's independent professional association for creators of music. Uh, Graham, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's a real pleasure uh, welcoming you on the show. Um, Normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation here in the UK and indeed the wider world, I do feel it's appropriate that we start with that because it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. Um, But just how has it affected you and your organisation? Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. We 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 have to we have to start with COVID really because um, you know it's reset so many things um, and very much so for for our members of a member organisation representing songwriters and composers and um, music's one of the uh, industries that's been hit hard and quickly and unfortunately is is going to be one of the last to to come out of the um, you know the recovery. Um, and it really, it really has presented some, some quite sort of existential challenges for, for many musicians. Um, not least because I think that um, musicians have, you know, varying roles, and um, some of them can fall through the the cracks of support that, that's been put forward for for other industries. Um, but I think similarly, we we really face a, a challenge now because the as the second wave. Uh, of lockdowns has, has started to come in. That's meant that actually there's not really been any recovery for the live uh, sector um, and and live within the music ecosystem plays such an important role for um, people being commissioned to write music and uh, music how it flows through into into you know releases and um, different forms. So it, it's been a very very significant challenge for um, for our sector. I think for, for us as an organisation, as a trade association, we've never been busier um, because obviously we're we're there to protect our members' jobs, their incomes, and and support them through this really tough time. But it, it's also been very challenging because one of the key things that uh, as an organisation we're known for and that we do is um, we, we hold a, a very important uh, award ceremony in the music industry, and so obviously that's gone by the way of all mass gathering events which is it's not been possible to to hold that this year um so we're, we're faced you know as as an organization the challenge of trying to navigate those issues but then as a trade association um navigating the the, the challenges which are impacting our members and when we sort of move through into say maybe this time in 12 months or this time in 24 months, hopefully by which time COVID-19 is no longer an issue. Just because of consumer confidence and the continued anxiety of uh, what this pandemic has brought about, do you think that the industry is going to sort of be experiencing a bit of a hangover for quite some time yet, irrespective of whether the virus is still out there? I think um, this is very much the, the, the fear that we have. So I think that um, 
one of the challenges facing our sector at the moment is that you've you've got transformation that COVID is bringing about, um, and there's a current view of from from some politicians that there's a transition to better jobs. Um, I think the point here is that the jobs that which are currently on hold, which are the ones that that music creators perform, they're very viable. Um, they just need to be um, allowed to to work. Um, so I think that unfortunately, the longer um, that the that the whole thing of particularly of the live music industry um, continues, we are going to see more and more uh, musicians and music creators with no other choice but to you know properly leave the profession. Um, because whilst you you can do some other work to tide yourself over for a few months, the minute we're talking from six months, another six months to a year to eighteen months, that's a huge, huge amount of time mm-hmm. to put your career and your work on on hold. So it's it's a big fear, um, and that's why we're pushing as hard as we can at the moment to try and get the government to um, put in place some sector specific support because we. We have a fantastic music industry, which brings in um, really successful net imports to, to, to the country and really can power. I mean, if, if there's one thing we all know, that once the social um, distancing comes to an end, we will all mm. want to go out and we'll all like to, to, to listen to music and party. So I think actually music could be a great you know, driver of, um, of recovery for the UK, um, so long as we can keep um, enough of, of the workers, you know, still in the system, ready, ready to um, respond. Mm. Certainly good for our mental health as well, isn't it? And that's something that's really been thrust back into the limelight by the uh, the pandemic situation, not just because of the anxiety over our health and also our employment, but also the social isolation side of the lockdown as well, not being able to go into work in a lot of cases, and for some people having to do everything remotely. I think that's right. I mean. I'm not saying that um, you know music. I think has has played an important part in in keeping keeping us all going. I mean, it it, it does that normally. You know, whether it's um, you know lightening our spirits or helping us be productive or go to sleep or do exercise. You know, all the, it it plays in such an important role. But I think the thing that's come through is is the social interaction and um, you know that there really is a gap. Whilst we've got live streaming activities which is one of the things that is now you know an exciting opportunity you know covid is bringing about obviously innovation um and so the various things which obviously are exciting for the future of the industry um it's just not the same um you know being in a live music setting whether that's a gig or a concert hall um there really is nothing like it it's reminded us of a few things, um, hasn't it, the uh, the pandemic, um, that learning within leadership in particular is something that is a constant. Um, we can sometimes forget that we're constantly learning. We're never a finished product in our profession, no matter what position that we're in. And businesses have had to adapt, to innovate. And a lot of what's been going on during this period of time has been trial and error. And in a sense, the everyday aspect of running a business or organisation can be quite the same can't it even though that same anxiety might not be looming large throughout that period of time i think that's absolutely right i mean um very much um once once i think that we we could see what was happening um i think all businesses um 
you know, well, not all businesses. I think you have a choice. You either, um, I suppose, take on board the the new situation and and respond to it and and see that right. Well, you know, this is new. We're going to, you know, for instance, move to online events or, or present our awards in a different way. Um, work in a different way as an organization, as a team, you know, the way that we do meetings, you know, pretty much every single aspect of, of the way that our organization previously worked has now been delivered through a digital um, method. Now, there's a huge amount of positive um, outcomes that are coming from that. Um, and I think that the, the message that I've been given to, to my team and, and something that we've really sort of embraced is that at this time, you can experiment. It doesn't have to be perfect. Everyone is in the same position. And I think that freeing up from the, this is how we do things, as, you, as you've as you kind of laid it out, that this is how we do it year to year. This is how the organization operates. There is a freeing nature to the fact that um, people have no choice but to experiment and to take on things for the first time. Um, and we're all in it together. And that's that's been, I think, really good that the organization is, is going to be working pretty much in this way now um, as a constant. Obviously, we'll, we'll add to that all the physical interaction elements we can once we can. But um, our business is now, you know, fundamentally changed. Mm. There's been some very good collaboration during this uh, period of time uh, through that recognition that we are all in the same boat. You're absolutely right. And during this period, we've seen business leaders really step up and act as beacons of inspiration, motivation and reassurance as well for everybody around them just to keep things ticking over. Um, But during a time like this, when a leader is having to do all of that and it can be so mentally taxing, where is it that you tend to look to for inspiration yourself when the chips are down and it seems as if so much is going against you? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that um, for me, what has, I, I think what's been um, significant about this particular period is not, I think, just that um, organisations have been under every organization has been under this significant pressure. I think that there's a human side to it. I think everybody um, it, in differing ways, you know, um, have personal uh, issues that have, this has brought about. So it's not just like, I don't know, you know, there's a, there's a business continuity crisis, uh, which is impacting a particular business or a particular industry and people, you know, go to work and put their head down and, and, and sort that out. It's the fact that, you know, people across organizations from CEOs down are also having to deal with um, quite significant personal crises alongside dealing with their business um, crises. And I, I think, again, this has brought, I, I think, a, a greater insight into, you know, we're all human beings, mm. organizations run by people. Um, and it, it's a small thing, but, you know, having an insight in, through Zoom into people's worlds um, and that you know the um, that that is what people are doing, and people are doing this every day of the week normally. But there's not so much of an insight into the fact that people are juggling their lives as well as the organisational pressures. So I think that this is healthy because I think it it opens up um, a more rounded picture of mm. um, people's situation and how people are responding to a situation and how they're dealing with it. Um, and that includes CEOs and, and senior managers, because I think sometimes there's, you know, perhaps more of a, um, 
a veil around that. But, but clearly, you know, um, people are, are people, and people, you know, will will be struggling or thriving at different stages of, of situations like this. Mm. It's exactly right. Sometimes you do need a moment to, to take a step back, take stock and almost switch off um, in a way. And it's not wrong to uh, to do that, even in the hectic world of uh, running a business. Absolutely right. Just before we do wrap things up on uh, this um, evening's uh, programme, uh, Graham, I would like to talk about the year uh, the future, just because I am conscious that we are short of time. Um, mm-hmm. We know from the Prime Minister's announcement just last week that COVID-19 restrictions are likely to be in place for at least another six months. And so this new normal that we're going to have to get used to, we're going to have to continue to adjust to for some time. Um, but over the course of the next year, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at the Ivor's Academy? And where do you see yourselves being this time in 12 months? So um, I think that um, my perspective is, you know, always one of uh, being optimistic. I think that whilst um, that, that statement from the, from the Prime Minister, I think slightly shocking because it was it was giving us a six month time horizon. That's actually very helpful because, you know, in a lot of senses I think that the hardest thing has happened, which is for us to get our heads around um, having a pandemic. You know, but we're beyond that now. We're very much in the how do we now factor in putting in place proper plans for stabilizing and growing the organization. Um, managing the risk. Um, and so I think it's, it's a lot easier now for us to put forward plans over the next 12 to 18 months, two years, factoring in, well, let's live, you know, put together a plan that, that assumes that we're going to be locked down um, to a greater or lesser extent. And then um, that's de-risking, you know, the instability that I think sort of this lurching reactive piece that happened through at least the, the first six months of this year which is, is really what's damaging, I think, to businesses and to industry because, you know, that insecurity um, pulls back confidence. So I think as an organisation, we feel, um, whilst the, the, the members that we're representing, are, are, I think just at the start of a very, very bad period, um, you know, our organisation is now going to be better prepared to do everything we can to support them through that. And they are certainly going to need all the support that they can uh, get for sure. Um, it's something that we're certainly at the Leaders' Council going to be keeping an eye on over the course of the next 12 months, how the industry is coping. And just mm-hmm. given how important this is and how enlightening it's been having you join us on today's show, Graham, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the programme with us at some point in this next year just to see how things are coming along. would love to do that. I'd really appreciate um, to ha- having you on the programme as well again, uh, Graham. It's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the air with us. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. And let's just keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be positive trajectory in the right sense from here. Thanks so much, Scott. Thank you ever so much, Graham. And I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in. Do please take care of yourselves and be considerate of others during this time because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome CEO of the Ivor's Academy of Music Creators, Graham Davis, onto today's programme. Um, next up on the show, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held various 
senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and served as MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, 
uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods. Uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this are you broadly supportive of their measures well it may surprise people to hear that, that i have been very supportive of course there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK, we, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, 
have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I 
wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack 
scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something 
over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, 
because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways... Uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of 
substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.